Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to this church. Today, as we continue our studies, we are picking up in chapter 2, verse 17, and we are going to press forward in our reading all the way to verse 10 of chapter 3, though we will have to come back probably next time and pick up some of the last of those verses uh, for reasons that will become apparent later. Uh, But we are going to to read all of that because Paul is relating, in a sense, in this section that we're going to read today, he's relating the circumstance that led to the sending of this letter. And that is a report. Uh, First, an anxiety and and a question about what was happening among these believers and Thessalonians. And then a report that came from Timothy about what was happening. And now Paul is rejoicing in what the Lord has been doing among the church there. And so we're going to continue reading so that we can see the whole of that circumstance that he's talking about. Uh, And uh, and again, we will look uh, at some of those last verses, but we're going to save really unpacking those last verses uh, until next week. But uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, reading through chapter 3, verse 10, before we read God's word together, Please join me in a word of prayer as we seek his blessing upon our study. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this word. We acknowledge and confess that it is your word given to us by your Holy Spirit, written down by the hands of men. Uh, We thank you that you have inspired it, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to use it as a living and active word to speak to us. Help us to hear the very words of God as we hear these words from your scriptures. Speak to us, O Lord, that we may hear. Move our hearts that we may believe. Give us faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to find life by his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians, the word of God. 1 Thessalonians, beginning to read in chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory And joy, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. 
But what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Our family is uh, like most families, I think, with kids at home. In that, we have a, a, a large and getting larger collection of board games. Uh, we have board games with dice. Uh, we have board games with cards. We have board games with those little uh, spinner things that look like a miniature version of the Wheel of Fortune to move you around the board. And as our children have gotten larger, so has our collection of board games. They used to all live inside of one little chest that resides in our living room, but now uh, our collection has expanded into nooks and shelves all over our house. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing if you have busy and uh, bright-minded children to have something to give them on those rainy fall days. It's a good thing to have somewhere to gather the family around a Scrabble board instead of around the television. It's a good thing, I think, to have uh, those things on hand, and it's even a good thing to have a little bit of friendly competition. As you realize, one of the skills of life that parents need to pass on to their children is the realization that you will not be a winner at everything you put your hand to. Sometimes we need to learn how to lose graciously. Sometimes we need to learn how to win graciously, too, without being a jerk about it. And so we have games in our collection where one person wins and one person loses. We have games in our collection where you count up your points at the end and you figure out who came in first and second and third. We even have a German card game that has no winners at all and ends when there is one single solitary loser. That one's a lot of fun. But then we also have this game that's called Race to the Treasure. It's made by a a newer game company, not one of the traditional Hasbro or Parker Brothers. It's made by a game company called Peaceable Kingdom. It is billed as a, a company that produces games that are cooperative rather than competitive. In other words, everybody plays in the same team, everybody tries to reach the same objective, and when the game is over, everybody either wins together or they lose together. Now, at first, I was skeptical of the game. It's simple enough, right? It's a game made for kindergartners and those who are older than kindergartners, but to me, it seemed like the sort of sensitive thing that some millennial came up with. And I'm, I'm a millennial, so I can make that observation. It seemed like the game board version or the board game version uh, of helicopter parenting, where you just eliminate any chance for disappointment uh, or frustration as your children play this game. It seemed like the kind of game where everybody plays nice because everybody plays along. And it just feels like, you know, that's not the way the world works, is it? Who wants to play a game if you don't get to be the winner sometimes? Who wants to put their effort into something where you don't get to come out on top? And it's not the way the world works, but Paul's telling us it's the way the church ought to work. In these verses, one of the things that Paul is highlighting for us is the cooperational ministry of the church. 
that doesn't sound spiritual enough for you. Use the terminology, the communion of the saints. That's what we call it. The fact that we in the church are united together, that we have a share in one another's gifts and graces, that the church is a place where we ought to be in fellowship with one another, not in competition with one another. It's a reminder that our goal in the Christian life isn't to prove our place or to get ahead of the people around us. The church is meant to be a place for fellowship, a place where we share our lives, a place where we share our afflictions, a place where we share the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the place where, where our greatest joy ought to be seeing God at work in one another. And so this is the kind of Christianity that the Bible pushes us into. And this is the kind of Christianity that Paul is putting before us in these verses. And it all begins with understanding what it is that we share together in the church. The first thing that Paul shows us is that we share a common family in the church. I've tried not to make a big deal about it as we've gone through 1 Thessalonians because it seems like a minor thing, and I don't want to be the pastor who majors on the minors, but you notice the way that Paul is constantly calling the believers in Thessalonica his brothers. Three times in the verses that we read, he uses the imagery of brotherhood to describe their relationship together. And as you read through the rest of the letter, you find it popping up over and over and over again, almost to the point of exhaustion. You can find it beginning in chapter 4, headlining every single paragraph in the ESV, showing up as the headline of each new item that Paul wants to talk about. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no one to no need for anyone to write to you. Chapter 4, verse 13, but we don't want you to be uninformed brothers. You can sit down later with a highlighter and you can do your own word search if you like. You can see it all throughout this short letter. The fact that here in First and Second Thessalonians, there's a greater concentration of the language of brotherhood than in any of Paul's other letters. It's everywhere in First and Second Thessalonians, this idea the overall impression that in Paul's mind, one of the primary pictures of what it means to be the church is that of a family. To be a part of God's people is to be in organic unity. It is to be a people who are united by ties of blood, in a sense. Not the familial blood that we share with our biological family, but the blood of Jesus Christ that redeems us from our sins and unites us together into one body. To be the people in God's church is to be a people with responsibilities to one another. It's to be a people with affections for one another. It is to be a people with a shared sense of hope in what the Lord can do as he works in us together. In his other letters, Paul uses other metaphors. This isn't the only picture of what it means uh, to be a church. So in Ephesians, the church is a temple. And the church grows as brick by brick, living stones are stacked upon the foundation of uh, the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians, the church is a body with many members working together in one organic unity there for one shared purpose. But here, Paul is teaching us the church is a family. Think of the other things that Paul has 
already said. He said that we were among you as a nursing mother with her children. Shifts the imagery. He says we were with you like a father exhorting his children. And even the language that he uses here when he says in verse 17 that he was torn away from them, brothers, for a short time, that word, torn away, it actually means to be orphaned. It's used sometimes to speak of children who are separated from their parents. It's used sometimes to speak of parents who are separated from their children in the ancient world. But the idea that he's giving us is that this removal from Thessalonica was like breaking up a family. It was an unnatural separation among those who ought to be together. I think this helps to explain the urgency that we hear in Paul's language. We might want to chalk it up to Paul being an apostle or the language being quaint or antiquated, but you know this, you notice this sort of overwhelming emotion in his words when he says to them, we had great eagerness, we had this deep desire to see you face to face, we needed to be with you. There is a longing here for Paul to be with his spiritual family. Now maybe those military families here can remember those long months of a, of a foreign deployment and you remember what it's like to want to be together again. Maybe those who, who grew up or are growing up in broken homes remember or, or know what it's like to have those family vacations that suddenly don't seem right because not everybody is there together. That's something like what Paul says he's experiencing now. He says he's been torn away or orphaned from the believers that he came to love so much. It's probably fair to say that in our modern Western society, we've lost much of the significance of the symbolism in this imagery, the imagery of a family. There are other traditional cultures around the world that I think that understand this a little bit better than we might now. I have a, a friend from Nigeria that I end up seeing a few times every year, and, and when I see this friend, almost invariably, the first question out of his mind when he sees me is, hello, Matthew, how's your family? It's immediately what he goes to. Americans will ask that question. We'll, we'll get around to it, but it normally comes after we've asked all the other important small talk questions that we have lined up. How are you? How are things going? How's the church? What are you getting into? Do you have any travel plans this summer? What's happening at work? And then maybe after a long pause, we'll say, what are your kids doing? And in fact, the way that we ask it shows that we have not a family understanding, but an individual understanding. We don't tend to ask, how is your family? We tend to ask, what are your kids doing? What are their interests? What are their hobbies? Uh, not my friend from Nigeria. And I think not the Apostle Paul either. Paul wants the church to grow, not just in a sense of our family belonging, but in a sense of our family solidarity. He wants the church to be full of this idea that if it is well with my family, it is well with me. I wanted to see you again, Paul says. We endeavored to see you face to face. Why is that? Well, verse 19. For what is our hope? or our joy, or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you, he says? You are our glory and our joy. 
That's a bold statement. And in a way, we can understand this by understanding that Paul seems to be remarking on, on the labor that he's invested in the ministry of the gospel. The church there in Thessalonica is, is his crown of boasting. It is uh, the fruits of the labor that he's invested in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could almost imagine Paul here as that faithful steward from Jesus' parable. Remember the parable about uh, the landowner, the, the master of the house who goes away on a long journey. Uh, and before he goes away, he takes a bit of wealth and he gives it to each of his servants. And he says, I want you to do with it uh, what is best. And, and when I come back, we'll, uh, we'll count up the accounts and we'll see what has happened. And there is that servant who comes with this smile on his face and he says, Master, look at what I've done with what you gave to me. Right? But the clue is there, even in the parable. Luke chapter 19, verses 15 and 16. This is the parable of, uh, of the talents, or the minas, in, in Luke. And it says there that when the master of the house returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. That's the point, isn't it? That it's not the wealth of the servant, but the wealth of the master that is invested. The servant is merely a steward. And so when Paul is talking about Thessalonians, you are our crown of boasting. You are our joy, our hope. What he's talking about is waiting for that day when Christ will return and he'll be able to lay the Thessalonians at the feet of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, your mina has made ten more. The harvest has been abundant because your wealth is producing in the lives of your people. That's what Paul boasts about. He hasn't forgotten, as he speaks about his labors in ministry, he hasn't forgotten the theology of the previous two chapters. He hasn't forgotten all the thanksgiving to God for his work to save these believers. He hasn't forgotten the blessing of the Holy Spirit so that the word preached would go out with power, with conviction and, and would be received as the word of God as it really is. He hasn't forgotten that when sinners are claimed out of the jaws of hell, it is a work of God Almighty himself. And he hasn't forgotten what he wrote to the Corinthians. That even in the family of God, there's one man who plants, and there's another who waters, and there's another who may reap, but God himself gives the growth. So Paul says that when Christ returns, the Thessalonians will be his crown of boasting. Because they're his family. Because he rejoices in them. Because he rejoices not in what he has done for the Lord, but in what the Lord has done through him for his family. And what it means is that the church is in it together. It means that the church grows and triumphs and rejoices in salvation together as a family. We do it now, and we're going to do it at the last day. That's what Paul says. When Christ returns, you, our family, our brothers, you are our crown and glory and our boasting. Now the question for us, brothers and sisters, is that if that will be our rejoicing when Christ returns, 
Where does it show up in our lives and in our church now? Let me get a little more specific, and I I hope you'll bear with the gentle nudge of your pastor, but the question for us is, when 12.30 rolls around on a Sunday afternoon and church is over, where do you go? I realize that we have different personalities, and I realize that we have different capacities for standing around in a large group of people and socializing and trying to ask all those small talk questions. And I realize that we have different responsibilities. And some Sundays, there are things that you have to get to. And I understand that. But the question for all of us is, when the Lord's Day comes and your family is gathered here, do you love to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you look forward on Saturday to hearing on Sunday how God has been answering those prayers that you've been praying for your brothers and sisters throughout the week? Do you long for the fellowship of the saints in the middle of your week when you're surrounded by unbelievers, when there's not a single person you know at your job or at your school who shares the joy and hope that you have in Jesus? When you see a new visitor, When you see a new family show up at Redeemer, do you think to yourself, I wonder when we can have them over? I wonder when we can share in some family hospitality together. I wonder when I can get to know this person and hear about God's work in their lives, and I can share about God's work in my life, and we can grow up together into Christ who is our head. Do we arrange our social calendars Do we order our midweek opportunities and responsibilities? Do we change our Sunday afternoon plans to make sure that we have time to spend with our Christian family? Or is the communion of the saints something that we squeeze into a 90-minute block on Sunday morning as long as it does not interfere with something better that we might have going on? It's simply a question of living like what we say we ought to be believing. It's simply a question of expressing with our fellowship the rejoicing and the unity that we share together in Christ. Paul's telling us the church is meant to share our lives together. He says, I wanted to be with you. I wanted to see you face to face. He wants to have that fellowship. The church is meant to share our lives together. It's meant to share our time and our joy and our hope together in Christ because that's what families do. The church is united, Paul tells us first, because we share a common family. That's a really good thing because the church is also united by the common afflictions that we share. It's the second thing that we find here, that the church is united in our common afflictions. Paul says he wanted to be with the believers in Thessalonica, not just because he loved them, but also because he was worried about them. Chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. He says it in a similar way in verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. The church was going through difficulties, afflictions. 
the word in, in some places, some translations, is, is translated as tribulations. And Paul is worried that these difficulties might become an occasion for stumbling in the faith and the believers had joined and so joyfully embraced not so long ago. This anxiety actually is a pretty normal reaction. It should be a normal reaction among us. And you've been there, right? You, you watch a brother or sister going through some trial, through some affliction, and the longer that affliction goes on, the more you begin to wonder how long they can hold out. And so you worry about them. You pray for them. To use Paul's language, if we can, you, you're actually afraid. You're fearful of how it might turn out for their faith in the end of the trial. And that's a normal reaction for members in the family that we should care enough about one another to be concerned when these things happen. What might surprise you is the fact that even though Paul is worried about the faith of these Christians going through these afflictions, he is not at all surprised that they have afflictions to go through. In fact, he says that when they sent Timothy back, they sent him to remind the church that afflictions are to be expected in the Christian life. Read verse 3 again. We sent him to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. How did they know that? Verse 4, because when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. This is not new, Paul is saying. This shouldn't be unexpected. It shouldn't be something that takes you by surprise. Interestingly, in, in describing what they did with Timothy, Paul is giving us a picture of the vast majority of what pastoral ministry amounts to. Sometimes I meet people that are not very familiar with church and with pastors, and when they find out what I do for a living, they ask that awkward question. What does a pastor do? A lot of people don't know, right? And it's not just that they assume that I only work on Sundays, but they legitimately have no idea what is involved in pastoral ministry. And the honest answer to that question is that mostly I remind people of the things that they already know. I'm doing it right now, right? It is exactly what I will do if I ever come to visit with you in a hospital room and I sit with you and I open the Psalms and I talk to you about the goodness of God in the land of the living. And when I do that, nobody ever says, uh, Pastor, I've already heard that one, actually. Let's have something fresh. Tell me something I haven't heard already. Pastors are constantly reminding the family of God, of the things that they already know. It's exactly what I do when I sit down with a married couple. And they can't seem to work out what Paul means when he says we ought to speak the truth to one another in love. And I take them back to the scriptures and I say, you know what this is supposed to look like? Yes, 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 we know. Right? And every Christmas I remind you about the incarnation. And every Easter I remind you about the resurrection. And every Sunday at the end of the service I remind you of the Lord who took on flesh and gave his life so that we might live. It's all reminding and it's all necessary. And it's necessary because our sin makes us forgetful. And so does our suffering. So do our afflictions. 
It's easy enough, isn't it, to read 1 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3. It's easy enough to read these things and to agree, at least categorically, that we are, to use Paul's words, destined for affliction, that these things must be so. It's easy enough to read these words when your body is whole, when your soul is at peace, when your life and your livelihood are not being threatened by some external force that you can neither stop nor avoid. It is easy to agree that we are destined for suffering when we aren't actually suffering, but when affliction comes to find us, we tend to get forgetful. So Paul says, we sent Timothy to establish you and to exhort you. Those are construction terms. He's talking about aiding and adding in reinforcements. He's talking about buttressing a faith that is already there, making it heavy and firm and solid so that it can withstand the shaking forces of a whole earthquake of afflictions because as the church ought to know by now, afflictions is what the church is destined for. It's what we share in and it's what you, brothers and sisters, will share in as well if you're not sharing in them already. This is what Paul told them. He says, we kept telling the church about the reality of affliction. And when he repeats these things, when he reminds them over and over again, he's just telling them what Christ has already told his church. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation." We see it showing up over and over and over again in the New Testament. We hear it coming from Peter. We hear it coming from, uh, from James. We hear it coming from Paul. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, right after Paul has been drug out of the city of Lystra and stoned to death and lived to talk about it, he goes back in and begins to strengthen the saints And he and Barnabas go throughout all the other cities where the churches have been established, strengthening them in their faith and saying to them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you know that, Paul? Remember when I was stoned? Remember the lashings? Remember the beatings in the synagogues? Remember all of these things? He was a walking reminder of what the church was destined for. He says, we kept telling you this. And so perhaps you should hear it now, and maybe you should try to remember it before your own afflictions make you prone to forget. God's people are destined for these things. We who share in the family of faith also share in our Christian afflictions. The language of, of affliction is a broad term. And and we're right to apply it to all sorts of sufferings that we face in this fallen world. There are some afflictions that come as a a direct result of our faith. There's the affliction of persecution that comes when we hold fast to Christ in the midst of a world that wants nothing to do with him. There are directly spiritual afflictions, but there are afflictions that believers and unbelievers alike share in. Just the common experience of men. We all get sick, we all have aches, we all go through periods of loneliness and frustration. And from our human view, we feel like sometimes it looks like this person gets more than their fair share, but, but even from the outside glance, they all still fall under the category of affliction. 
Right? There's the affliction of betrayal at the hands of somebody you thought you could trust. There is the affliction of that grown child who is making a mess of their life and they seem utterly, incredibly resistant to any kind of wise counsel and it grieves you. There is the affliction that Paul experienced when he was in Athens. It says that he was there in the city and he was walking through and his spirit was provoked to find that the whole city was full of idols. Don't you ever feel that your spirit is provoked as you walk in a world that is a completely godless culture that wants nothing to do with the faith that you profess? Isn't there a, a sense of suffering and affliction in those things? any number of tribulations that God's people might be called upon to experience in this life, then the basic teaching of 1 Thessalonians is that when those things happen to you, believer, don't you be in the least little bit surprised. This is what we're destined for. In other words, this is what God has prepared for us. He's the Lord of our destiny, isn't he? He's the one who plots the course of our future. He's the one who brings sufferings into our lives for good and godly purposes. Somebody says, that doesn't sound like it makes sense. Right? How could God possibly have good intentions for the suffering of his children? What could he possibly have in mind? Suffering is a bad thing. Right? If we bring out our basic categories, we say, put all your good things over here and put all your bad things over here, we take suffering and we go, well, that fits in that category, doesn't it? Suffering is bad. So how could God have good things out of our sufferings? John Calvin says, there is no golden mean between the two extremes. Either this earthly life must become low in our estimation or it will have our inordinate love. What good things does God have in plan and in store for his children through their afflictions? Breaking us of the inordinate love of this fallen world. Therefore the Lord afflicts us. Therefore he destines us to have our hopes in this life dashed to pieces. Therefore, he allows us, through his kind and fatherly wisdom, to lose the things that mean the most to us on earth so that we would learn to long for things that are much better in heaven. The Lord destines his children for affliction. And he does it because he uses affliction to refine them and to strengthen their faith. Hold on, though, Pastor. Paul says he's afraid here. He just told us that God has good purposes in these afflictions, that God is the one who's destining these things. So why is Paul fearful of what's happening among the church? Well, Paul says he's not fearful about the tribulations. He doesn't tell us that he's fearful about what God might be doing with them, but he's fearful that in the midst of these trials, the tempter, he says, might try to take his share. For fear that the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain, he says. It's a reference to the same Satan that we skipped over in verse 18, by the way. And some of you are reading that and thinking, I wonder if he's going to come back to that. 
It's the same Satan. It's the same devil that he's talking about who hindered his visit to the Thessalonians. And Paul doesn't elaborate on his, his description here. He doesn't tell us how Satan hindered him. People have all their conjectures. Maybe it was this, uh, this sickness that Paul had that nobody seems to know about. Maybe it was uh, the political situation in, in Thessalonica. Paul doesn't tell us. He doesn't even tell us how he might have been tempting the people in Thessalonica. He never gives us a systematic theology of what the devil is doing in God's creation. But he does acknowledge that there is a personal adversary who is against the Lord's purposes for his family. That's what the word Satan, what the name Satan means. It means adversary. It means that he is the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. It means that he is the slanderer of God's children, the accuser of the brethren. No, it doesn't mean that he has his own jurisdiction apart from God's power and his, his, uh, his ordaining grace. It doesn't mean that the devil is omnipotent in bringing accusations against God's people. It doesn't even mean that he can create afflictions of his own design. But what he can do is to try to twist the afflictions that God has ordained. What the tempter can do is to slither into your sufferings with this suggestion that, you know, if God really cared about you at all, you wouldn't have to face those afflictions you seem to be going through. And if you doubt that he's able to do it, remember that it's the same trick that he tried with Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 and 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It's how the temptation comes, right? Not with the suggestion that suffering is wrong, but with the suggestion that suffering is unnecessary. With the suggestion that we can, in some way, although our Savior didn't do it, in some way, we can have the crown of boasting without the cross of suffering. Paul said he was worried what was happening while he wasn't with his brothers and his sisters. He was afraid of the kinds of voices they might be listening to while they shared in the sufferings that God had destined for his children. That's why he was glad to hear this report that Timothy brought back. Timothy returned with this message of comfort because not only did the church share in the same family, not only did the church share in the same afflictions, but the church shared in the same Savior. I realize, as I've mentioned already, that I have not left myself enough time to unpack an entire third point. So we will come back to this. But I could not bear to leave you with a cliffhanger. And that's exactly what would happen if we had stopped at the end of verse 5, if we had taken the ESV's subject headings. There it is in big, bold letters, Timothy's encouraging report, separating verse 5 and verse 6, as though Paul is changing the subject. He's not changing the subject. Right? He's already talked in, in the first portion about his, 
his compassion uh, and his desire to have communion with these believers. He's talked about his concern for the welfare of their faith. And now in verses 6 to 10, he's going to talk about the comfort that he finds in knowing that they are standing fast in the Lord as he is standing fast in the Lord. It's not a new subject. It's the end of the story. It's the resolution that Paul's fear and anxiety for their faith has been looking for. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. At the end of the day, that's the communion that gives meaning to all the other things that we share in the family of God. You know, you can go to just about any place and find gatherings of people uh, that have uh, shared interests. Or, or shared causes, or even shared afflictions. You can go to most hospitals, most Wednesday afternoons, or sometime during the week, and you can find support groups and recovery groups for every kind of trauma imaginable. You can find a special interest group where people gather together around what they like to do, and they treat one another as family. You can join a running club. You can become a member of the Model Railroaders Association. You can join Mothers Against Drunk Driving and find that there's a group of people who share your common interest in the world. You know, Rosaria Butterfield writes about the way that she was surprised shortly after her conversion, because after her conversion, she came out of the LGBTQ community and came into the church, and she found, much to her dismay, that the LGBTQ community was much closer-knit than the church that she was joining. One of these groups treated one another like family, and the other did not, and is not the one that we should expect. Any number of public associations out there in the world, but the thing that distinguishes the fellowship that we have in the church is that our unity is found, first of all, not in our affections and not in our interests, not even in our sufferings, but our fellowship is found in Jesus Christ himself. Here's the way that the Westminster Confession puts it. It says, all saints, this is the communion of the saints, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. One of these fellowships is primary and one is derivative. Our fellowship with one another is derivative of our primary fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are joined first to his sufferings and first to his family and only then to one another. Our unity is found in being called by him and being saved by him. Our fellowship comes from being united like bricks built on the foundation of the same temple, like members joined together in a single body, like branches fed by the same vine. Our unity is found in standing fast in the Lord. And it is our connection to him that gives purpose to the other things that we share. So it's our adoption through Jesus Christ to the Father that makes us brothers and sisters. It's our faith in Christ and in his work of his spirit that makes our sufferings bearable. It is the afflictions of the cross that he endured on our behalf. 
that gives life to our mortal bodies and hope for our eternal souls. And it's what finally brings us back to realizing that in the church we, we can't be in competition with one another. But rather we must hold all things together and, and have this fellowship that we're called to, uh, to, to manifest and to nurture among us. Go back to verse 19. What does Paul say? What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Here's the foundation of our fellowship. That when Christ returns, he'll bring a victory that's already won. Not one that you get to win, but one that he has won and gives to his people. And we as partakers together receive that blessing of the victory that he wins for his people. It can't be a competition because he's already won. Because he is our savior, unites us to himself, and he unites us to one another. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this word and we pray that you would give us faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Make us as his people partakers of your spirit and your body together. Give us fellowship with yourself and fellowship with one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.